And so we're going to turn to Mark chapter 10, uh, verse 46 to 52. And the sermon title is, I want to see. Interesting, the song was, I want to see you. This is Bartimaeus, and he is... um, He's going to lead us into an encounter with Jesus. Mark chapter 10, verse 46, speaking of Jesus and his whole team of disciples, says, Then they came to Jericho as Jesus and his disciples, together with a large crowd, were leaving the city. A blind man, Bartimaeus, which means son of Timaeus, uh, was sitting by the roadside begging. When he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, He began to shout, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Many rebuked him and told him to be quiet. Shut up. And he shouted all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. Again and again. Jesus stopped. We're just singing, no one could stop God. God stopped. Someone arrested God. Jesus stopped and said, call him. So they called the blind man and said, cheer up. On your feet, he's calling you. And throwing his cloak aside, he jumped to his feet and came to Jesus. What do you want me to do for you? Jesus asked him. The blind man said, teacher, I want to see. Go, said Jesus. Your faith has healed you. Immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus along the road. So the Holy Spirit's been messing with my normal start to the year. You know, we've all had an opportunity to kind of siesta. Well, most of us, except Bevan. But, um, you know, we take a nap in our routine. And, and now we begin again. And, and normally at this time of the year, I don't know if anyone kind of relates, there's, like, there's a bit of pressure to get things rolling, you know. It's, it's like there's this thing called life, and, and it, it's like this slow steamroller that wants to gather momentum. And unless you get your ducks in a row, they're going to be flattened by this thing that uh, is, is rolling up behind you. Anyone kind of identify with that feeling that, uh, and you know, it's sort of like, Let's, let's get this thing moving. And, and, in, and in my case, obviously, there's, there's teams and, and obviously all the congregations and the various ministries that are so exciting. Um, discipleship year starts. It's a lot of work for Bevan. Um, and then life groups. And then people have made big changes. You know, we, we've been away for like six weeks and people have decided to immigrate in that time and, and other things. And so we've got like you know, catch up to do. Uh, this week we go on a staff retreat. The following week there's a, a wonderful opportunity for prayer and fasting in the Explore congregation. The other congregations have their own timing and, and way of doing it. 
And, and in one sense, all this is already in place. You've just got to wait for the calendar to roll up. Of course, there's a lot of preparation that goes before that. But the Holy Spirit's been messing with the start to my year. He's been reminding me of a sermon series about, yeah, we all stuck on it, aren't we? And like, how the heck, Jesus, are we supposed to do this thing? And, you know, some clown said that the rest of my life is going to be determined by the quality of the rest in my life. How do I pick up this year with all its momentum and still walk in the grace that God says, this is what I want you to do? You see, rest is ultimately only something found in God. We've seen Jesus is the Lord of rest. And he, you know, Yahweh says to Moses, and Jesus then says, uses the same, but Yahweh says to Moses, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. And Jesus then says to his disciples, take my yoke upon you, my burden is light, etc. And he also says, I will give you rest. You see, it's when we walk with Jesus. Creativity, effectiveness flows from rest. Enjoyment, appreciation, connectedness, making time holy all flow from rest. And, and so I can't just start this year and go, okay, I've got a whole lot of stuff to do. I better get going because I want to do this year differently. I've been incubating that word. Now I want it to pop and give birth to stuff, you know, different stuff, new life. So we move on, but we move on differently. And probably we start by stopping. Our first move is waiting. Listening, appreciating, delight. And we consciously remind ourselves of the promise of his presence. And we don't move on until, like Moses, we see it manifest. So there's partly why tomorrow the staff start their work by stopping and going on retreat. And this is why we're inviting uh, ourselves as Explore to a week of prayer and fasting, starting next Monday, as we heard in notices. We're going to do it each morning and evening, and that is purely because, I mean, there are some people who can come to both, and that's really great, but we recognize we've got a mix of families in that, so sometimes, you know, mom can come in the morning, dad has to come in the evening, or something like that. And sometimes people can't come all the time, but we've created several opportunities. There'll be daily themes, so similar in the morning and evening, but there'll be a progression that moves its way through the week as we start by stopping and giving ourselves to the presence of the Lord. And we don't want this year to flow out of our own industry only, although we believe God will bless what we do. We want, in the metaphor of uh, one of the previous year's prayer weeks to bake the bread slowly, <laughs> to work the yeast in and let it rise and let it rise and then we'll put it in the oven. And, uh, and fasting is part of this. Choose something in your everyday life, and I'm giving you a week's notice, that will remind you that you are prioritizing His presence. It's not fasting, that's the most essence does. You choose something from your everyday life that you're going to forego 
that will remind you that you are prioritizing your quest after God and His presence. Uh, for most of us, just turn off your phone. It'll be so spiritual by the end of the week, you won't even know it. But, you know, some of us are going to do food. Some of us are going to do food and phone. Some of us are going to choose uh, to shape our lives in that time with an intentional waiting on God. And, uh, and we'll be doing that before any life groups start and before all the other stuff happens because we wanted to come from this place. Fasting is about focus. We change habitual actions to zero in on what we really want. Read that again. Fasting is about focus. It's not a hunger strike. We're not, you know, threatening God that we'll do self-harm. Um, it's about focus. And it awakens to our, our, us to what we really want and reminds us of what we really need. Fasting is about hunger. It's about habits, hunger, and focus. And so I think it's a great way to start the year. Anyone keen? Anyone getting excited? I'm, I'm looking forward to it. Yeah. I'm looking forward to it. And uh, I think you'll be surprised. So, talking about focus and looking at the things that we really need, it brings us back to our reading, and it brings us back to the son of Timaeus, who is evidently known in the early church, because they don't need to explain anything. They just say, you, you know, Peter, who was dictating to Mark, this kind of says, Oh, that's where Bartimaeus came in. So it seems that the journey he began following Jesus made him known. A little bit like, you know, the guy who to carry the cross of Jesus, and he's introduced as the father of Alexander and Rufus. And we're all going, who the heck's Alexander and Rufus? Well, clearly, they were people in the life of the early church that had become well-known to the people who were reading. Um, and so Bartimaeus, because, uh, you know, in Mark's gospel, literally only... We read about Jairus' daughter. It's the only other named person who receives a miracle, except for Bartimaeus. And it's, it's most likely, people believe, because the following Jesus that the story ends with actually carried on as a lifetime encounter, and he became part of this community of faith. Now, that is a little bit of conjecture, but what we do know, he was, he was there, and he's a beggar on the road outside Jericho. And it's likely that he, that every day he would move from some nearby shelter or even home, and he would carry his cloak, which had a double purpose. You see, at night, his cloak was his blanket. Part of the Old Testament law is that if you took the cloak of a poor person as security for a loan, so you, he wants to take a loan, you need some security, and he's literally penniless. The only thing he's got is, you know, other than the clothes on his back, is the cloak. Pretty much everyone had a cloak. Why? Because the cloak had a double purpose. At night, it was his blanket. The so part of the law is if you took the cloak as security, Exodus 22, 25 to 27, you had to return it by nightfall. So that's about how long you can, you're allowed to make a poor person owe you anything after they just got to write off the loan. Um, so if you're not willing to write it off by nightfall... <laughs> You still got to return the cloak. You give it back by nightfall. If you don't, and he gets cold and tells God you're in trouble. That's what Exodus says. You don't want a poor guy telling God that you're in trouble. So that was what the cloak was. The cloak was his bedroom. The cloak was his shelter. The cloak was his protection. 
because he was undoubtedly extremely poor because of his blindness and therefore inability to work inside the economy of that day. He was an extremely vulnerable person. But the cloak served a double purpose. During the day, he would go to his, his location, his busking spot, his begging spot, and he would spread the cloak out and he would sit on that cloak, and particularly because he was blind, people knew and when they went past and they wanted to give to him, they would just throw. Like, you know, you go past the busker and, uh, in Green Market Square and he's busking and you're going to give him something. He's got his guitar case or a hat or something. And you throw your coin or your currency or whatever it is into the box. His cloak was his hat. His cloak was his box. He would put it down on the floor and people knew that's where you threw the coin. And then he would hear the little soft thud or whatever it is. And he would maybe try and find it, and if he couldn't, he'd just gather up the edges and pull it towards the center. And you would have given him something for a meal. His cloak was part of how he earned his income in that context. And people understood what the cloak meant for him. But the cloak also defined him told you that he was poor, told you that he was blind, told you he couldn't work, told you he was dependent, it told you he was broken. But he's heard about a man called Jesus. Not Jesus from anywhere, but Jesus of Nazareth. This guy, this man with the street address. But there's, there's stuff he's heard, and we don't know all that he's heard. But it's clear that people tell him that the promises of, of the Bible are being fulfilled in their hearing, which is what Jesus said in Luke chapter 4. Today, these scriptures, that the Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is upon me to preach good news, to open blind eyes, to get the lame walking, to set prisoners free, and to preach good news to the poor. And he thinks, I qualify. Because the Spirit of the Lord has anointed Jesus Blind people are receiving their sight, and he's heard these stories. And on this day, he hears the movement of a crowd. And many people are traveling through Jericho from the Transjordan area, from the north, and, and they would move around Samaria. So pretty much anyone who was anyone, unless they were from the Bethlehem area and the Jerusalem area itself, they would travel this road to go to Jerusalem. There were normally a lot of people, and this was before a festival. So there was already a renter crowd, and now comes Jesus. And in the midst of all this noise and movement, he hears this name, Jesus, and he realizes this is the one about whom people are telling stories. And listen, stories are powerful because stories are promises and prophecies of what can, God can do. And stories in the Bible are still stories for today. And he is hearing stories from his day connected to this man, Jesus of Nazareth. And he begins to shout. Man, nothing's going to keep him quiet. And the people tell him, shut up. And he shouts out all the more. Don't you hate it when poor people irritate you with their needs? 
And he shouts out even more, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And he keeps shouting out this messianic title, calling on Jesus. And the unstoppable God stops. Nothing stops God more than an honest cry for mercy. Jesus is calling. And you, you got you know, the crowd, fickle as ever. They're kind of going, oh, we're going to see a miracle. It's probably what they thought. And so they say to him, you know, a little bit like a bunch of guys in a pub when someone gets nominated to go and pay a forfeit. Hey, cheer up. He's calling you. Go on. And funny enough, part of that whole tete-a-tete going on there is on your feet. Now, how easy is it for a blind guy to suddenly just get on his feet and walk through a crowd? But you know, you, sometimes when you're working in the Spirit, you must just jump to the dumbest things. And so they say to him, hey, buddy, cheer up. And literally, get on your feet. He's calling you. Bartimaeus is pretty convinced he knows what's coming. He's heard the stories. He's heard the testimonies. And I want to just show you his faith. First, his faith has woken up in hearing the stories. He clearly had heard something about Jesus. It shows itself in the way he is determined to cry out. You know, crying out to God is not a sign of weakness. It is often a sign of robust faith. And discouragement causes us to give up on banging on heaven's door to make sure that we get what we trust in God for. Psalm 2 verse 7. The Lord says to Jesus, and you're part of this promise, you're my son. You're my child. Today I become your father. Ask of me. I will give the nations as your inheritance, the ends of the earth as your possession. Ask of me, ask of me, ask of me. And so he begins to cry out. And then his faith shows itself in the way that he, notice this, I don't know if you saw it. It, it describes in the, in the tense and the grammar there, holds these movements sort of like simultaneously. They participles, meaning as one thing's happening, the other thing's happening. And the same movement he throws away this cloak. What's he throwing away? He's throwing away this old identity. He's throwing away his dependence. He, he hasn't even seen Jesus yet. And he's going, my life isn't going to change today. I'm not going to need this rag anymore. And he throws the thing away. And he jumps to his feet. I mean, literally, he leaps to his feet. Have you thought of it? A blind guy, he can't even see. And, he, and he's like, you know, sitting there, whatever, crying out. And suddenly he hears Jesus say, come. And he's up, leaping without sight. I mean, this is faith. I mean, I don't know if you read body language, but hello, you know, you don't need a lot of discernment to realize what's going on here. I think Jesus is smiling from ear to ear by this stage. He's going, oh, yes. Look at this. 
He throws away this rag that's not his identity anymore. And he literally takes a blind leap. His expectation is sky high. Listen to Isaiah chapter 35, verse 3. Strengthen the feeble hands. Steady the knees that give way. It's a messianic prophecy. Say to those with fearful hearts, be strong. Do not fear. Your God will come. He will come with vengeance, with divine retribution. And, and I want you to listen what God's vengeance looks like. He will come to save you. Then the eyes of the blind will be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped. And he mixed up the two categories. Then the lame will leap like a deer, and the mute tongue will shout for joy. These are the promises and prophecies of the Bible. And he's going, if this is the messianic son of David, this is my day. And he connects the prophecies and the testimonies and his own action. And there he is throwing away his blind man's cloak. And there he is jumping while he does not yet have sight. Faith? Anyone? Is it blind? It's a staggering thing. If I was pastoring this in the moment, I'd, 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 I'd want to tell him, like, you know, back off. You know, it doesn't always work. Whatever, you know. He's like, up for it. And then, still without sight, still without sight, he walks towards the voice that calls him. He trusts that voice. And he walks towards the voice that calls him. And then a question that must have puzzled everyone. It was a question from Jesus. I'm going to briefly unpack it. Bartimaeus. And he wants, he wants Bartimaeus to put it into words. What do you want me to do for you? What do you want me to do for you? You know, sometimes that's a good question just to ask. What do I think Jesus... <laughs> Jesus, what do I want Jesus to do for me? Maybe at the start of this year. Maybe you need to go, Jesus, this is what I want you to do for me. Like, actually take time to unpack it. Why did Jesus do it? I think it was a very loving thing to do, and I'm going to give you amongst uh, uh, just three suggestions. The first is, Jesus did it because of discernment. Sometimes we don't know that we need mercy or what we need mercy for. So we're stuck in our pain, we're stuck in trouble, and part of our healing and redemption is working out what we need Jesus to do for us. And we want him to just take the problem away, but actually the problem is in our own identity, in our own thoughts about ourselves, about others. The problem is in our emotions, and we're just saying take it away. But actually then he would break part of who I am, and I need to discern it, I need to separate, I need to be able to say that must go. I need to agree with what he's about to do, or else I'm going to let it back in. So James 4 verse 3, that sometimes we don't get answers to our questions because our motives are a mess. So sometimes Jesus says, what do you want me to do for you so that you actually clarify and discern what your motives are? And in the next chapter, towards the end, Mark 11 verse 25 Jesus says this, and when you stand praying and you're holding something against someone else, forgive them so that your heavenly Father can forgive you. And when you have a big request of God, but your heart is angry and grieved 
and hurt, no matter how much you bang on heaven's door, it's not going to open. And he says, what do you want me to do for you? And you begin to unpack what's going on inside of you. Discernment is a very important part of answering the question, so what do we pray for? And your own discernment in that space is a gift from Jesus. Discernment is a wonderful, we think healing is a gift. Discernment is a wonderful gift that Jesus gives to help you keep your life clean. And the second thing, of course, is relationship. God is not a vending machine. He's not an electricity distribution board and you walk up and you flick a switch and then you just get the power you need. It's a personal thing. Notice this. What do you want me to do for you? Not just what do you want. What are you asking of me? Do you really know who you're engaging with? This is a connected thing. You see, God really knows you, but do you know the one you're asking of? And so, you know, sometimes our need becomes God's relational opportunity. Think of it as you, you need guidance, for example. You know, Balaam needed guidance. He needed a bit of correction. God used a donkey for Pete's sake to get him on the right track. It wasn't very relational. Know this, that guidance is always a relationship opportunity for God because you're trying to hear him. And he's going, at last. <laughs> and so there's this discernment, there's relationship but supremely, and this is what Jesus actually names in the text, of course, it's faith. That's what he's looking for. You see, Jesus wanted Bartimaeus to name and own the fact that he was asking for the impossible. I don't know how much freedom you get in realizing you're coming to an omnipotent God and you ask him to do something that is literally beyond your power and beyond the power of anybody else. And I want you to put it in words. Dare to ask me for the impossible. Of course Jesus wants to heal him. And, and listen, of course Jesus has far more faith than Bartimaeus. I mean, you know. But Jesus wants Bartimaeus own the desires of his heart and stand in front of this crowd and say it loud. And that's actually part of his faith. I mean, listen, Jesus loves people, especially people who are broken and who need mercy. But he loves faith even more. <laughs> God is drawn to redemptive action for broken people, but God is activated by faith. I said this, nothing stops God faster. Nothing stops God more than an honest cry for mercy. But listen, nothing God moves God more than a brave prayer of faith. And so Jesus wants Bartimaeus to put his faith into words and make the request. Rabbi, I want to see. Done! Go! Notice this. 
your faith has healed you. Not my faith. I mean, Jesus had plenty of faith. But Jesus discerns what really activated this in the moment. He had been listening to the stories. He'd been waiting for his moment. And when Jesus came, he called out. He made sure. And, and when the thing came, he was ready to get rid of all the junk and the, all the old identity and the old stuff. And he was on it. And Jesus says, your faith has healed you. I don't know about you, but there's a heck of a lot of stuff here for us. I think this word has lit a fire in the room. I love watching fires burn. But for Pete's sake, don't do that today. Don't just go, oh, that was a nice little fire. Oh, that sermon got something burning. Oh, that's nice. We could warm ourselves. We could watch our slowly. Bring your torch and light it up. Bring your flame and light it up. Get your torch burning. Get your faith on. <laughs> our God has come. That's what Isaiah 35 says. Your God will come. And he will come to save. Our God has come to save. By his death on the cross, which would happen just a few weeks after this encounter, Jesus establishes the legal authority as our representative to cancel sin and all its effects. And when you put your faith and trust in him, he will deal with that. But notice this. Jesus recognizes that it takes faith to take the benefits of that transaction and roll it out into people's everyday lives. And so what he did once for all on the cross, we get to activate day after day and person after person, encounter after encounter. You see, we're not just learning from Bartimaeus' faith. We're learning from what Jesus actually activated in the situation. Can I say to you, Jesus sees you. And if you're asking him for mercy, he is fully attentive to you. Prayers for mercy stop him in his tracks. But what he wants to see is your faith. What he wants to hear is the request to do the impossible. By faith, Bartimaeus cried for mercy. By faith, he would not give up. By faith, he threw away his old identity. By faith, he jumped up. Unsighted, he walked to the voice that called him. By faith, he says, I want to see. And that faith is what Jesus wants to see.